The High Power Hangout is a podcast that promotes and supports firearms, sports, and firearm safety. I do not support crime, negligence, illegal actions, or misuse of firearms. Always treat every firearm as if it was loaded, point them in a safe direction, and never put your finger on the trigger until you intend to safely fire and always be aware of what's behind your target. Discussions on this podcast, write-ins, or guest appearances are not responsible for your actions or inactions as a result of content covered in the show. Do not use reloading data from the show without working up from a considerably more conservative charge and slowly working up until a safe load can be obtained. Hi there, folks. Welcome back to the High Power Hangout. I'm JP, and today is Thursday, February 22nd, 2024, and it's been way too darn long, hasn't it? Yeah, I'm real sorry about that, but let's be fair. You were warned. So what do we have on the agenda today? Let's see. Well, it's quite a bit of catching up. We'll take a trip into the load lounge to chat about some neat things that have popped up since setting up the new reloading room, which will take up most of our time. We'll chat a few minutes on some maintenance items that I thought were pretty important before getting into the high power season. And we'll hear a quick word from our sponsors before getting wrapped up with the upcoming match schedule. So pitter patter, let's get at her. All right, folks, welcome back to the high power hangout. We're going a bit off script here. Uh, I had this podcast ready to go about yeah, three or four days ago. And then lo and behold, the weather broke, the sun was shining, and I said, you know what, it's time to get out to the range. So I was able to get out to dead zero for the first time to give it a whirl, and I just got to say, it was an absolute ball. I had uh, working targets at 200, 300, and 600 yards, so I was able to capture all that. It was a beautiful day. There was some wind that was blowing, giving me a little bit of a challenge, and Russ and the entire group there at dead zero did just a phenomenal job just making sure everything went smooth. So I was really happy about that. We'll get into all the practice later. Um, but I was able to shoot four rifles, which is really cool. I was able to shoot service rifle. Finally, uh, about 100 rounds of service rifle. We were able to shoot the Elysio to practice up for some mid-range. I uh, brought out my grandfather's M1 National Match just to test out some of this ammo that I found in an ammo can that he had. Uh, it was labeled with what it was, but you can never really trust it when it's, you know, kind of scratched up and everything. So I wanted to give that a shot. Uh, and then I brought out Ugo the Ugly Grand, which is just a Frankenstein piece of a grand that I was looking forward to shooting here in a couple weeks. Um, so it was a really fun time as I was driving out there. I kind of realized like, hey, you know, while driving in the former state of Illinois through the quote unquote urban areas, if you will, they were exhilarating enough to get the heart rate going, you know, while you're dodging traffic at 100 miles an hour down the interstate. They're going 100, not me. Uh, I will gladly say that weaving in and out of this Tennessee farmland with elevation changes and scenery and livestock and transitioning to mountain with more beautiful scenery, it will probably never get old for me. So this is just a notice for future JP. Don't take this for granted, you idiot. Anyway, let's get going here. Thanks for sticking with me. All right, so where were we? If memory serving me correctly, we were just coming off my apology tour for needing some time off during the move to the new house in a completely different state, which I don't recommend doing more than you need to because, well, moving sucks. And it's incredibly challenging to stay focused in on the old high power when you're trying to figure out how you're going to organize your brand new house. But I got pretty lucky here. The lady friend was out of town and... <clears throat> insisted that I set up the new rifle and reloading shop that, let's face it, I've had my mind occupied with for several weeks. I even found an app on the iPad called KeyPlan 3D that let me build the room from the exact specs of the house blueprint and add all of my 
furniture, I guess, like saves and workbenches to their exact measurements so that I could get my layout the exact way that I wanted to. That was done, oh, I don't know, the day after we closed on the house. So truth be told, I had this room set up before any other room in my house, which was, for me, pretty cool. So I put my flag down in what is now being referred to as Tranquility Base. Why? I don't know. I needed a nickname and because it's definitely my home base. It is definitely tranquil and we definitely went to the moon in 1969. No questions there. I do love the setup. I love the location. And as my waiter said to us the other night at dinner, it absolutely slaps. Apparently, that's what the kids are saying these days. So feel free to use that one courtesy of me. Let's see, what else? Oh, I was on a brief road trip and had the pleasure of stopping by Sedalia, Missouri. For those of you who are bullet and geographically savvy, you'll recognize that name as the home of Sierra Bullets. In my former life of shooting metallic silhouette, I used to shoot with a great guy named Tommy Todd. Tommy and I used to shoot at the same matches in Paris, Missouri, and usually at the NRA National Championships. Back then, I was too young to really understand anything in the reloading room other than when my grandfather gave me projectiles and charged cases and told me to just stuff them. Well, my new route between the new house and my family back home in Nebraska takes me right next to Sedalia, so I thought I'd give Tommy a call and say hi on my way home. What a cool spot. If you haven't been there or you haven't looked at photos before, it is a one-stop shop for everything Sierra. Their sales, shipping, production, R&D, everything you can think of is right there on site. Now, right now, they don't give public tours anymore, but Tommy was kind enough to show me a bullet-making machine, and I gotta say, it really reinforced my confidence in their bullets. I sound like I'm being paid to say that, and that's actually the complete opposite of the truth, if you think about it, because, well, I I'm paying them, so anyway. But it was overwhelmingly impressive, is kind of an understatement. Tommy mentioned some of the specs that they hold their production line to, as well as some of the impressive research they conduct, and it just gave me the warm and fuzzies from start to finish. So if you're in the area, I recommend stopping by and checking out their outlet shop for buying some reject bullets. While the public tours would be really cool, I would much rather see their manpower be put into continuing to put the supply into the demand. It's tough to tell what they're going to have on the reject bullet list, but I was lucky enough to find some 77 grain Match King rejects and some 6mm 95 grain Match Kings. And they sell by the pound. They have an approximate bullet to pound scale, so you can figure out how much you need, really. I've shot rejects for many years in silhouette and high power, and I know people that mostly shoot them almost exclusively, and there's really no difference in my opinion. So big thanks to Tommy and his team for just giving me some of their, well, I guess not spare time because they didn't have any. I definitely made them late for the rest of their day. So let's just say thanks for your hospitality for an old friend. Before we get moving on to the meat and potatoes, this is a friendly reminder to whoever needs to hear this. Change your safe batteries. They don't change themselves and they're fairly unforgiving when it comes to asking for forgiveness on this really embarrassing error. And while we're on the topic of reminders, a friendly reminder to go clean out your reloading dies. I don't know if I would call it laziness or neglect, but I had to go clean out some of my dies, including my 223 die, my 6BR die, and my 308 die. And great googly moogly, it was eye-opening. It's always nice to start off the season with shiny new things that make you think you can shoot better. And it's also good hygiene. 
Anyway, since I haven't whipped up anything about the shooting session yesterday, and I've only done a little bit of dry firing on the scat, my apologies about being somewhat of a hypocrite there, and it's just the offseason, I'd consider us just about caught up. So let's get to what we're after in today's Load Lounge. Welcome back to the Load Lounge, one of my favorite segments here. As I was unloading all my bullets and brass and powder and primers into the new house, I was having this mental conundrum of, well, what the heck do I shoot this season? And where do I put everything in these rooms? And how do I sort all of this stuff out so that I can ergonomically get to things that I need to and not have to do an underhanded double backflip just to reach my burger 80.5s hiding under the carpet, under the fourth panel on the wall. Yeah, you get the picture. I've been so cramped for most of my high power career that having the freedom to move things where I want them and not have to squirrel them away is honestly quite liberating. Here's a funny thought that came across my phone. How much is a plethora? I showed my little brother how much brass and powder it takes to kind of be self-sufficient in this sport, and his suggestion was to define plethora on this episode. So gosh darn it, I'm going to do that right now. Plethora is defined as a large or excessive amount of something. Okay, large amount? Yeah, okay, sure. But excessive? Yeah, all right, fair point, little bro. You got me there. Shortly after unboxing a approximately a Brazilian projectiles, I realized that with the loss of my Tuesday night league matches that I'm sorely going to miss, I have the flexibility to shoot as much as I want on whichever day I want, uh, bi-weekly, weekly, whatever I want, out to a thousand yards. So does it necessarily matter that it's not match-grade ammunition during my practice days? Absolutely not. All of a sudden... My backlog of these random bullets from random manufacturers at random weights have become king of the castle, king of the castle. Well, hello there, 55 grain Hornadies. Hi there, Sierra 77 grain rejects from 1999. And hello, Hornady 68 grainers that were kept in a Ziploc bag in my closet from when I purchased them from Cabela's my first week of owning a 223. Hello to all those random 30 caliber and 6mm round nose bullets that my grandfather sent me home with many years ago. This is a great problem to have and a great way to remove some of this clutter from my reloading shop. Now most of you probably already do this, but with my limited schedule and availability to make matches and practice over the last 5 years, I have basically just been loading match grade ammunition non-stop. So this is kind of a new concept to me. And that kind of poses another question to myself. Is having a passion for making good ammunition considered early onset F-class? So then I thought further that bone-shuddering question. Could I afford to save some time and just powder throw all this 200 and 300 yard line brass? Ugh, I feel like I'm going to eat my words here. For some of 2022 and all of 2023, I had been using the auto trickler system sitting on a really nice AMD FX120i scale. It's a really nice setup, but it is definitely not a time saver. Now, I knew this, and I was dead set on just spending the extra time on good ammunition and, and reloading. But now I'm starting to see some 
peeks into my future and realizing that I need to start being more efficient with my time. Why not just use the powder thrower like the good old days? So I thought about it. A lot. And then I thought about it some more. And I talked with a few high power gurus that I usually bounce ideas off of. And in the end, I just justified doing it to myself. And here's why. So like I mentioned a minute ago, a majority of my shooting this year is planned as practice days, either once a week or once every two weeks out at dead zero if I can. It's not match play. We're talking about practice. And I now have this foreign to me situation where I can use a majority of that practice time throughout the season to gain some confidence in my powder throwing ability, which has presently saved me vast amounts of time since ammo loading has begun about a week ago. Now I know that there's always the people who are die hard on weight versus volume charges. I don't want to get too far into this, but there are pros and cons to each and I see them. People who weigh charge each round argue that it's much more accurate than volume charging because you know exactly how much weight of powder is supposedly going into each round. And sure, I guess, that's yes. You'll get the folks arguing that moisture changes the weight of each kernel of powder, which could throw off the given volume of kernels for a given weight. Yep, I guess that makes sense to some extent as well. The volume folks will argue that it doesn't matter how much your powder weight changes due to humidity, it'll always dump the same amount of powder in the case for a given volume setting. Sure, I guess that's true, but you never really know how many kernels are going into that case either. I guarantee you can dump 50 different cases and they'll all probably have 50 or so different number of kernels. That being said, my grandfather, and probably a plethora, nice, of good other shooters can bring their powder dump to the range, do some low testing, and achieve incredible velocity consistency shot to shot after many years of practicing on the old dumper. Now, I bet you could probably pay a bunch of bench rest shooters $100 each to Tetris stack the most possible amount of kernels of Hodgson 4350 or whatever into one given cylindrical structure, and they would probably pack it perfectly with no air pockets, and it would definitely weigh differently compared to somebody who just volume dropped it from a Redding BR powder dump. Think about it. Now, I can't advocate one way or another. I'm just not as experienced with it, so I'm just going to leave it at that. As Kyle Busch once said in a race, it's balls and strikes. So I decided to take it back to the basics for the short line ammo in the meantime, and load with my old trusty Harrell's powder drop. I felt like I was loading with iron sights. It was an immense time saver, and some of the techniques started to come back to me pretty quickly, like smooth and consistent handle speeds, tapping the drop tube twice before moving on to dumping in the next case in case there was some bridging, and keeping the powder hopper fairly full for consistent charges. Now, again, I'm no expert with this, but a few thoughts that I found helpful that have been passed along to me by other shooters. Some people don't like to continue if they have a crunchy throw. That's where you manipulate the powder dump handle and you can feel it cutting through some of the powder kernels. Personally, I'm okay with crunchy throws. I know that it's just that laser-sharp shear of the dumping barrel cutting a few kernels as it dispenses. That's its job. It's designed to do that. But some people prefer to throw that charge back in the hopper. Again, to each their own. 
Also, I think most people would agree with me here that keeping the powder hopper filled up at least halfway or more is a pretty good technique in keeping your dump volume consistent. Now, the Harrells is a pretty good powder dumper. I tested this with my Harrells a few years back and found that I can still get consistent throw weights down to about the 30% hopper fill line. I think I was painstakingly measuring the weights of every other charge on an entire powder hopper while loading rounds, and I just found that 30% was that limit for me where it would start to throw a little wonky. So I recommend, along with a few others that have taught me about this game, keep the powder hopper above the 50 yard line at the lowest. And to me, that makes sense. I guess if, if you have a full hopper, gravity is going to be adding pressure on the powder going into the barrel at a certain value. And because it's all stacked across the hopper and bridging up a little bit, the pressure is probably going to be fairly consistent. But as we start dumping and getting lower in the hopper, we start to lose that downward pressure on the powder and the barrel, which will throw off some of the powder that's going into there as far as weight goes. Maybe it's not much, but it's just my fantasy land thinking, and that's my hypothesis. And another word of caution here, Harrells recommends against doing the double tap with the throwing handle at the top of the throw. What I'm referring to is some people will lift the handle, then give the handle a tap or two against the back of the throw, and then dump the charge. The idea being that the powder will settle down and become more consistent in the throwing barrel from charge to charge. Now, I actually like the idea of this, even though Harrell says it will actually reduce the consistency of your charges. However, yielding to experience here, I avoid doing it and just roll with the consistent throw speed and cadence. No double tap. One last bit of housekeeping that I'm going to suggest here is to give the powdered charge tube a quick taparoo with your fingernails before moving it from the case mouth. Most of you throwers know this, but occasionally the longer sticky powder will bridge up or jam in the drop tube, stopping the smooth flow of powder into the case mouth. Then you move on to the next case, and it all comes spilling out onto your floor before you get there. Yeah. Ball powder doesn't seem to have that problem when compared to the long sticky powder. I always throw a catch bucket under my thrower because I am notorious with my reloading room for forgetting to do the finger tap. Yeah, I spilled several rounds worth of powder on the floor. And you know the old saying, fool me once, lose a couple grains of powder, but fool me every other time and I just swear more in my reloading room. So what else do we have here? Oh, dies, right. So this came up recently and it caught me really off guard. I had to do a meeting with the mines with my buddies Jerry and Mark to see if they could peel off my blinders. Remember when I said as a reminder to clean your dies? Well, I was in my routine maintenance phase of cleaning out the reloading dies when I pulled apart a 223 Widen micrometer seating die. I mean, obviously, I immediately realized that I needed to clean it a bit more but I discovered that the inside portion of the housing sleeve that fits into the lock ring had a vertical wear mark on it. I'm not sure if I explained that location very well. If you're familiar with the Reading Competition seating dies and the Widen micrometer seating dies, they have that spring-loaded sliding sleeve that moves up and down inside the main housing. It appeared that the sliding sleeve was moving up and down in the housing unevenly, which really caught my attention. 
I looked at it more and more and I broke out my other wind dies to see if they had the same wear marks. And they did. But worse. Some had marks on just one small area and one of them had marks on two areas uh, completely opposed to each other. So I had to reach out to my two voodoo wizard buddies who always give me good advice. After some troubleshooting via text messages, we isolated that the problem could stem from the play that the wooden lock rings have in the Forster coax press. Did you know that the wooden lock rings and the Forster coax press do not necessarily play well together? I did not. But it's one of those things that when you finally realize it, you do a major facepalm just like I did. Have you ever had that before? Like someone points out something that you're doing and it's obviously R-O-N-G wrong and you had no idea you were even doing that wrong in the first place. Well, here are what should have been some dead giveaways to me. And I'm not proud about not noticing this. Don't get me wrong. But this is most of what the High Power Hangout podcast is for. First, the Widden dies in the Widden lock rings slide really, really easily in the Forrester coax slot with a lot of play. Now, knowing that the coax press was designed to have floating dies to minimize runout, I didn't think this was going to be much of an issue. Floating lock ring, floating die, not really much of a problem. However, when I raised the ram and it touched the beginning of the sliding sleeve at the bottom of the die itself, the top of the die leaned to the left. To me, that would indicate that, for whatever reason, the alignment of the lock ring and the Forster coax lock ring slot were a bit off. They're not designed to work together, necessarily. Even if I twisted the die 180 degrees in the slot, we still had some problems. So after some chitter chatter with the voodoo wizards, I decided to swap out the wooden lock ring and replace it with, what's it designed for? The Forster coax lock ring. This easy fix minimized the amount of play in the die when placed into the slot, and it stopped that left-leaning tendency. Alright, wonderful, but I'm not 100% sure it solved my problem. I feel better about it, but time will have to tell if it actually fixed my issue. I feel like I put a band-aid on my arm and my leg feels better. Of course, now I had the itching feeling to check my ammo that I had previously loaded with the setup and it looked fine to me. The runout was, well, it was whatever, you know, it's going to be what it is. And the cartridge based to O jive measurements were consistent. So I guess I can't blame this die setup for my poor marksmanship for the last year. Rat farts. Well, anyway, I loaded up a bunch of practice and match ammo for the upcoming month or so, saving some time along the way. I ended up deciding the following. I'm going to throw my charges as long as I feel comfortable at the 200 and 300 yard lines. I think most people would probably agree that it was a bit overkill relying on the Auto Trickler V4 to slowly do its thing. I'm sacrificing a bit of consistency in the ammo for time, which is something that I desperately need right now. And heck, maybe it'll even convince me that I was vastly overdoing it in the past, especially for practice ammo. However, for the 600-yard line and beyond, I'll still stick with my auto-trickler. I wanted it, I saved for it, I bought it, I love it, it's mine, and I think it's good to have good 600-yard line and beyond ammo. And I need to keep that consistency with the ammunition until I iron out some of these darn gremlins in my 600-yard and beyond prone. Same with Palma, same with mid-range rifles, blah blah blah, auto-trickler all the way. 
I'm not shooting them too often, so they get the princess treatment for right now. All right, that's enough for the load lounge. We will move on. Okie dokie, folks. We have a few episode long continuation of the Elysio saga. Now, this one's going to be more of a where are they now after last year's mostly self-induced hangups. So let's start with a quick diversion to explain how I got to today's Elysio saga, Where Are They Now, presented by Bradford's Powder Flavored Coffee. As one does, I was flooding my 2024 calendar with all the match schedules I could get my hands on. Naturally, living in Tennessee and being so close to Dead Zero, I added all those matches to my calendar. I've added all of Oak Ridge's matches and a few others that popped up here and there. Now, this took quite a bit of time to sort through. Every club has their own website, different calendar layouts, 6.329 million different acronyms for the different disciplines being shot, and some of them are pretty good, but I realized how much I had taken for granted the Illinois 10-state schedule. For those of you who aren't familiar with it, Illinois puts out a master schedule of most of the high-power matches throughout the year for the states of Illinois, Iowa, Missouri, Minnesota, Indiana, Michigan, Kentucky, Tennessee, Ohio, and Wisconsin. The list is generated by the high-power match directors emailing their schedule to the Illinois organization, and then a master match list is created by, oh, don't make me say it, let's just say the Illinois high-power chairman. Please be his name. In short, it's a really nice list, and I really took it for granted. So where I'm going with this is that I miss how easy the Illinois High Power Group makes it to find matches. Really, it's probably fairly easy to get on that list. Just send the details of your matches to info at IllinoisHighPower.org. That's info at IllinoisHighPower.org. And boom, you're done, mostly. But think about it. I hop onto the IllinoisHighPower.org website, IllinoisHighPower.org. I open up a 10-state schedule, and I can see that for instance, on June 2nd, 3rd, and 4th of 2023 in Oak Ridge, Tennessee, was the Charlie Smart Regional Championship, which was a 50-round four-man team, an 80-round match, and a leg match covering Friday, Saturday, and Sunday. All from the 10-state schedule. Boom. Easy peasy. Not so easy when you sign into a local club website that just says NRA match on August 4th. Well, that could mean a million things. Anyway, a long-delayed kudos for Mr. Illinois High Power for putting this together. Hopefully the folks realize the benefit of the time you're putting into this master list. So let's get, okay, let's get back on track here. A few Illinois buddies and a few of us Illinois refugees are planning to shoot the Talladega Spring Classic in a few weeks. Morale, all-time high. Motivation, all-time high. Anxiety realizing this is right around the corner and I have no ammo loaded. You guessed it, all-time high. Well, part of the match schedule that we were planning to shoot includes a few 3x600 matches. Well, assuming match rifles are allowed, I figured it was a great time to put the Elysio in 6BR back into action. But holy caterpillars, I realized I was back to square one with the brass and the loading data, and I had to hope to his high holiness of high power that I had organized my brass and tools in a place that I could easily get to them so I could run through a practice session just to get my scope sighted in and make sure my load works. Gee willikers. 
So I found everything. Thank you, High Holiness of High Power, and thought to myself, great, I have 400 or more pieces of 6BR brass that are probably sized with insufficient headspace shoulder bump. Yeah, shoulder bump, you get it. If you're just joining us, I'm going to fill you in on a quick recap in 10 seconds or less. Last year, my bolt was sticking really, really, really badly on post-shot bolt lift with the 6BR. We found out I had insufficient shoulder bump with my dies during resizing, likely due to measuring device failures, and Gary Alicio put his magic in to help alleviate this problem. There, I think that was 10 seconds. But right as Gary had finished up with my rifle and worked his magic, I moved to a new house. So I hadn't had the chance to use his new stub gauge to measure my current brass that had been resized. Measure up on the headspace compared to the brass that was fired out of the rifle from Gary and get a good overall picture. Also, Gary had polished up the chamber to alleviate just a little bit of that tight headspacing in there, which I was also curious to see how that would change the, well, any Audi of the brass. So I had all of this brass that was sized, but not sized enough. I measured these against the freshly fired cases that Gary Alicio had sent back to me and found out that my cases were really about the same dimension as the fired cases. So I thought I was going to have a really long weekend ahead of me trying to bump the shoulders back of the brass that I've already sized, quote unquote there, by me, and some that were unfortunately already primed. So I don't recommend sizing or at least bumping the shoulders back of primed brass, but it can be done with, you know, the appropriate safety precautions. Well, I had some unprimed brass that was marked as extremely sticky when I tested it in the chamber prior to sending it to Gary and thought, hey, that's going to be a good experiment. I would see how it feels in this new polished chamber. That brass I put into the chamber closed and opened with ease. Well, that was kind of a head scratcher, but... Whatever Gary did to open up that chamber during the polishing saved me a lot of headaches. And just out of curiosity, I took the wooden headspace comparator gauge and Gary's new stub gauge and measured two kinds of brass. The extremely sticky brass that wouldn't fit last fall in my chamber and the brass that Gary had fired out of the rifle but didn't yet size. While the wooden showed a bump of four to six thousandths, Gary's stub gauge showed absolutely no bump. And that stub gauge is shaped with basically a 6BR reamer. So it's got to be dead on. What's the difference? I'm not sure. But I'm going to get to the bottom of it now. Now before we all try to tag this on Widden, which I realize is kind of what this sounds like and it's not, I'm not wanting to head in that direction. There has to be a reason that the Widden comparator gauge for headspace is measuring bump and the stub gauge isn't. I'm just not that experienced with the BR family to know where the discrepancy is. Now my spidey sense is telling me that maybe the shoulders are being bumped in an area that the wooden gauge is measuring but isn't bumping the entire shoulder all the way down or I guess all the way up whichever way but that would mean that the shoulder angle in my resizing die would be off wouldn't it? And that's fairly unlikely. Anyway, I'm not fretting over it, but I'm going to do some investigation and follow up with the company and, and just see if they have any suggestions or ideas. Now, a little bit of off script stuff here that I wanted to bring up. 
This morning I decided to reset my sizing die for the 6BR using Gary's stub gauge and make sure that I can set it to, initially I was thinking like 3000, so I think I'm gonna tighten that up a little bit because I don't think we need that much play. Uh, and I sized the brass and I measured it with a stub gauge. I got my 3000 that I was going for, but I took the Widen comparator gauge and found that it was actually measuring a 10,000th bump. Stub gauge, three. Widen, 10,000th. Why is there such a difference between the two? I have no idea. Anyway, back on script here. I have all this 6BR loaded in brass that was giving me some headaches, and now it seems to be not. Oh, and by the way, did you know that Sierra 6mm 107 grain Match Kings changed? Boy, that was confusing to me. I had been loading the 6BR with 107 grain Match Kings from, well, apparently a long time ago. They look like your normal hollow point boat tails. They have the little hollow point and, you know, they look all pretty and everything. But somewhere in my move from state to state, those last few hundred from that box of 500 got buried somewhere that I just can't find. So I figured, what the heck, I'll just open up a new box of 500 and realized about 20 rounds into loading it that they were pointed. Like, they look like full metal jackets, but like somebody squeezed the nose on them. Now, I know those of you with basic common sense are like, why did it take you 20 rounds to realize that these were different style bullets? But thoroughly confused, I reached out to some friends. They weren't quite sure, so I gave the Sierra Tech hotline a call. Did you know that back in January of 2014, Sierra changed their 107 grain Match Kings? It happened. They pointed the nose and added a few extra nuggets of ballistic coefficient to each little projectile. Philip at Sierra mentioned that it was worth a click or two of elevation savings at 600, which I thought was cool. But anyway, back on target here. So I have a good amount of the 6BR brass, I guess, ready to go for dead zero, and I'm cautiously optimistic that it will go without a hitch, which it did. Now, if only I can keep that pesky Bix and Andy trigger drive oil. All right, we're getting towards the end of the episode here, but since I have a few friendly reminders about small items, I thought it'd be good to give you some more suggestions. And this came actually from a previous listener's suggestions about rifle maintenance. Now, this isn't anything prolific or, you know, mind-blowing here, but it's often overlooked and can prevent you from having a bad day at the range. How to clean a service rifle trigger. Specifically, only because I'm familiar with it, the Geisley High Speed National Match. Folks, this one is easy, I think. Don some eye protection, find a safe space, flip the lower upside down, spray it with contact cleaner, blow it out with compressed air, and oil her up. That's it. Okay, I'm being a little facetious here, but it is really straightforward. Disconnect your lower from your upper. Find a safe space away from a flame. Find a trash barrel or somewhere where you can spill out some harsh chemicals into, uh, you know, like a local koi pond or something. Please don't do that. Now, I'm usually going to give the inside of that lower receiver a quick wipe down with Q-tips and a paper towel. Just get some of that easy buildup stuff off there like brass and loose primers and everything that's built up over the year. After you have your eye protection on and probably some rubber gloves in a well-ventilated area, give it a quick squirt with some compressed air. Then give it a good spray down with electrical contact cleaner. I found this at Home Depot. It was like $4. I give that thing a full spray down with that contact cleaner. I flip the lower upside down. 
I'll spray up into that area. I'll get the whole trigger recess area. I'll get all the springs. I'll get all the pins. Heck, I'll even work my way into the mag well because that's a good place to, to clean as well. Spray it until it comes out clean. It starts dripping out of your upper clear. Now, I've heard of some people using brake cleaner. I don't have anything against brake cleaner, but contact cleaner does just fine. And that's what the Geisley Match uh, book says to do anyway. So after you've sufficiently sprayed it down and surprised yourself at how much trash and black colored gunk builds up in there, I recommend giving it one last wipe down in some major areas with a paper towel and some Q-tips. And I also like blowing it out one more time with compressed air, whether it's from the can I use or you're one of the cool kids and have the compressor line. Once you have a relatively clean trigger group, because let's face it, it never gets perfectly spotless, it's time to get back to working condition. I like to follow Geisley's suggestion on oiling, and I'm gonna take some Go Juice oil, throw it on a few drops on the moving parts and springs without going overboard. This stuff does like to leak. Anywhere you have a spring or rotational contact point, for lack of a better term, I make sure to give it a few drops. Geisley also has a few suggestions on grease points if it's a newer trigger. I think it's maybe on the inside of the sears. So do not forget about those if you have a new trigger. And keep in mind, the Geisley manual does recommend changing out the trigger hammer. Uh, I believe it's every 10,000 rounds, which is something I forgot and something I'm due for. So if you see me on the range and I have a broken trigger, you can say you're an idiot. But here's something I do not want you to skip. After giving it about 10 to 20 dry fires, get it all oiled up and ready to go, re-weigh your trigger pull. Every time I've cleaned out my trigger in the winter, it's changed weights. Not necessarily from four and a half pounds to like nine pounds or two pounds, but just enough that I had to get it back into the four and a half pound zone or just slightly higher. Do not forget about that. It's an easy fix. And if you fail tech inspection, it's just one more obstacle in your way before you get to the match. When I just did this uh, two days ago, I came in at four pounds, eight ounces, which is great four pounds, nine ounces, and then the dreaded four pounds, five ounces. So I gave it a little wiggle. We got it now in a four and a half to five pounds. I'm pretty comfortable. So like I said, it's nothing prolific or complicated, but I figured it was the perfect time just to chat about this in case you people thought you were caught up and ready for the season. Today's episode is brought to you by the all new powder flavored coffee. Thanks to those kind folks over at Bradford's. If you miss all the wonderful smells of powder going down range, you can finally enjoy those now distant memories in each cup of coffee every single day. Bradford's now features flavors of your favorite powders by the big names like Alliant, Hodgton, Vitavori, and their all new Ramshot line of coffee without having to break the bank for a simple pound of happiness. Not sure what your favorite aroma is? Well, nobody does, but Bradford's has you covered with both a fresh new open jug and freshly fired shot aromas. Stop into your local grocer or outdoor sporting goods store to check out Bradford's new one and eight pound bags today. At Bradford's, we're best in show every show. All right, folks, one last topic here before I sign off. I did receive an email from a listener who was mentioned in a previous episode, and that was Rick out east about how to improve offhand. Rick shot me a quick email on what he found was useful and wanted me to share with the other listeners. Great idea, Rick. Rick writes, 
one of my solutions was to purchase the Tipman Elite M4 22 long rifle. I'm using it for CMP tactical rimfire sporter matches this year, and this rifle is all aluminum and I've changed out the stock, replaced the plastic safety, and installed a LaRue MBT two-stage trigger, all while keeping it at the legal seven and a half pound weight limit. This has really made me work for good scores in offhand. No coat, no glove, and very light weight. It also prefers the cheap ammo CCI standards, federal automatic, etc. It's been great for shooting indoors during these cold months and gives real feedback and a little excitement versus the traditional dry fire. The reason for the email is to possibly share this with other shooters as it has greatly helped me and that's what we do, help each other. End quote. Rick, my man, great ideas there. Not only economical with the inexpensive ammo, but added challenges of having a lighter rifle, no support clothing, and year-round shooting. I thoroughly believe that cross-sport training can really help your main discipline performance. I hear of people shooting small bore and seeing great improvements in high power. In fact, my Tuesday night league guys shoot indoor offhand air rifle with their service rifle setups. Great thinking there. Rick, thank you for the follow-up. I hope your hard work pays off in the upcoming season. Alrighty then, we've reached the end of this really, really long episode where I slowly sign off and disappear for a couple weeks. Well, let's see. What's on tap for the in-between times between the podcasts? Let's see. We just finished up a really busy practice session, which is about seven hours long, and we'll talk about that later. And then March features a few more practice sessions, hopefully, if not at least some scat. We have the Talladega Spring Classic. Folks, if you haven't checked that out, check it. CMP is hosting the Spring Classic at Talladega, Alabama that, as I said earlier, absolutely slaps. It's a great spring kickoff. It features a metric dump truck load of shooting in a few different disciplines and is all on electronic targets at a really cool range in Alabama. If you haven't been there, go. It's awesome. Check out the schedule on the competition section of the CMP.org. So we're back to service rifle season. Hallelujah. Things are coming up quickly. The weather's warming up and the natural gambling addiction motto of I'm going to win the next one has planted its flag deep into my competition brain. So let's get rolling, folks. If you want to chime in, get your name said, give a shooter shout out. We haven't had that in a while, folks. Uh, you have an idea or just want to say hi, shoot me an email at jp at hphpodcast.com. That's HPH for the High Power Hangout. Remember to make every single shot count. I'll see you on the next one. <laughs> <laughs>